Walker, and I'd like to welcome you all to the Defense, Department of Defense Bloggers Roundtable for Tuesday, March 15, 2011. Again, my name is Lieutenant Tiffany Walker with the Office of the Secretary of Defense Public Affairs, and I'll be moderating our call today. And on the line today, please remember to clearly state your name and blog or organization in advance of your question. Uh, respect our guest time, keeping questions succinct and to the point. Today, our guest is Carly Brink, Air Force Research Laboratory's X-51 Alpha Technology Demonstrator Program Manager, Joseph Vogel, Boeing Phantom Works Defense Space and Security Director of Hypersonics, X-51 Alpha Program Manager, and George Thumb, X-51 Alpha Program Manager, Pratt & Whitney Rocketdyne, who will discuss the upcoming flight by the X-51 Alpha Wave Rider Hypersonic Flight Test Demonstrator. Um, at this time, I'd like to get any other bloggers that join the line. I have Ms. Carla Voorhees, uh, Graham Warm, Tim Gaffney, Amy Church, John Nolan, Derek Kaufman, Vicki Hogue. Is there anybody else? Hi, this is Sharon Weinberger with AOL News. Hi, this is John Reed with Military.com. Marina Molenic with Defense Daily. And uh, sorry, yes, that was R.E. Church, A-R-I-E. Apologize. R.E. Church, okay. And what was uh, Mr. Reed? Or John Reed, okay. And Lieutenant Walker, this is Nancy Culligori, Communications for Pratt & Whitney Rockadine. Just wanted to let all know that Curtis Berger is on the line for Pratt & Whitney Rockadine this morning and not George Thumb. Okay, thank you very much for letting us know uh, about the change. And right now we'll take an opening statement from the speakers. Okay, well, I'll, I'll start it off. Uh, I'm Charlie Brank. I'm the uh, AFRL Program Manager for the X-51. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us. And what the goal was for today was to go over uh, where we stand in the program. We're getting ready to go do our second flight sometime soon, the next couple of weeks. And we just wanted to describe to you where we're at and uh, give you the opportunity to ask any questions about uh, what's going on with the program. We haven't really had one of these in quite a while since our last flight. So uh, we plan to go fly uh, the same profile that we tried to fly last time. Uh, we got a lot of good data. We got about 80 to 90 percent of our uh, flight test objectives. And uh, the next flight will be to see if we could repeat the same success and uh, get uh, move out farther in the Mach regime. We got up to about Mach 5 in the last flight. We're hoping to get up to about Mach 6 in this flight. And uh, uh, if anybody has any questions uh, of me about uh, what were the results of the last flight and and other things, I'd be happy to take the questions. Curtis, do you want to say something and then, then lead in? Well, yeah, this is Curtis Berger, Pratt & Whitney Rocketdyne. The only, the only thing I would add is, uh, you know, we, we understand uh, the success we had in the first flight. Uh, you know, first flight of a, a system like this, that was a, an enormous success for, for us and the overall program. But at the same time, we all realize the inherent risks of demonstrator-type systems like this. With all that said, and the success of the first flight, we are anxious uh, for the second flight, and we can't wait to get this thing in the air and show what we can do with just the second of four flights. So we're, we're pretty excited about it, and we're ready to move forward. And again, from, from myself, Welcome the opportunity to sit in on this uh, roundtable, and you know, glad to answer any 
engine type specific questions that, that y'all might have. And I don't know if Joe's on the line or not. I don't believe he's going to okay. make it. Okay. But I can, I can answer pretty much the airframe side myself. As, so. as well as the engine side, probably. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So over to you, Lieutenant. Any, anybody wants to ask questions, I can you know, let them fire away. Are you going to go in order, or should we just jump in? I guess just start asking questions. Okay. Um, you know, the first X-51 flight was described, I think it was described as historic because it was the longest, and correct me if I'm wrong, the longest supersonic combustion ramjet-powered hypersonic flight. Uh, in the second flight, do you kind of expect, will it go longer? Are there, is it, will it mark sort of any first or, you know, longest, fastest, any of that? Well, we we definitely hope that it, it will go longer. Um, the planned trajectory of the first flight was to uh, separate from the B-52, boost for about anywhere between 26 and 30 seconds, and then uh, the booster would uh, fall away, and we would run for 240 seconds on scramjet power. That all happened. However, we only ran for 143 seconds before we had a, a vehicle anomaly. It, it, I guess I could describe it now because people will ask. Uh, we had an apparent airframe engine back. Uh, the engine connects with the airframe mounted nozzle uh, in the back of the vehicle. And we had an apparent thermal seal breach uh, that caused some hot gases to escape uh, into the vehicle rather than going out the back of the nozzle. Uh, we definitely had enough power and uh, thrust going out of the back of the vehicle that we can, can maintain fl flight and accelerate. However, as the flight progressed, we had a steady buildup of that hot gas in the vehicle, and it uh, caused some problems with uh, some of the avionics and some of the, uh, the wire bundles that we have in the vehicle. And we actually terminated the flight at 143 seconds instead of the 240 I think it's important to realize as we were going along, the engine itself was operating nominally all the way up into that 143 seconds. So we were we were really excited about that, and we got an awful lot of good data. But the goal of this flight is to get past that 143 seconds and have what we would call a nominal demonstrator flight of 240 seconds. And if we didn't have that uh, that uh, thermal seal breach. We were anticipating the vehicle, instead of getting up to Mach 5, would have accelerated probably just up to or a little short of Mach 6. So that's the goal. And if, if that happens, then yes, uh, we did set those records. Uh, it's about 10 times longer than any other scramjet flight in, the, in, in history. Uh, there have been a couple that have been 12 to 14 seconds, and, and 143 seconds uh, far out uh, surpassed those. So... From that sense, yes, if we if we get our goals and it'd be 240 seconds and we get to Mach 6, then, then we would surpass the uh, the marks that we sent in, set in the first flight. Thank you. All right, sorry, this is Lieutenant Walker. I had some uh, technical difficulties here on my end. We are going to take them in order. And was that Carla that just went? Uh, that was Sharon. Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, Sharon. No, it's my my fault. Uh, Carla, we'll take you next. Oh, I uh, I'm just listening. Thank you. Graham, go ahead from Aviation Week. Hi there. Could I just ask what you have done to the vehicle subsequent to the first 
uh, the anomaly on the first flight, what have you changed, and what have you done to uh, try to ensure the vehicle has been put together properly this time? Okay. Um, Graham, we, we set out about a, a month after the flight, and what we gave everybody uh, from Pratt, from from Boeing, from our side at AFRL, from the Flight Test Center, and from the folks from NASA, we all gave ourselves about a four-week period to go and look at all the data uh, to see what each of us saw. Uh, we let each of the um, what I'll call IPT leads that were in charge of different equipment to really examine the data in their area and make a, a technical judgment. So. Uh, you know, the avionics guys looked at their stuff, the engine guys looked at their stuff, the aerodynamics guys looked at their stuff, and we all converged on uh, West Palm Beach down at Pratt Whitney Rocketdyne about a month after the flight, so late June of last year. And we kind of laid it all down flat on the, on a, on the table uh, and said, everybody who has an observation, anything anomalous, like anything you saw that you did not expect, write it down, and we're going to kind of organize it. And that's what we did. And we, we actually had a uh, fault tree specialist from Pratt Whitney Rocketdyne uh, work with us kind of as a, uh, a facilitator. And we came up with a timeline for the vehicle, and we came up with two separate fault trees that we wanted to examine to do kind of a root cause analysis. And the two fault trees that we came up with, Graham, were the vehicle didn't accelerate like we thought it should. So failure to ex accelerate. And then the other fault tree was unexpected uh, internal environment uh, um, observations, both temperature and pressure. And uh, we just did a classic fault tree fishbone diagram and started peeling the onion back. And, and I think at the end of the day, between the two fault trees, we had 156 different nodes that we had to, to walk through and, and uh, examine and, and document. And, Cut to the chase of it, it, it became apparent we pulled all three remaining engines from the vehicles and we did a, a, a pretty thorough dimensional check and looked at the, looked at the drawings versus what was done and, and it became apparent to us that the, that interface between the, the cooled hardware engine and the vehicle mounted nozzle, there was some discrepancies in what I would call design intent, meaning what the designers wanted to have happen and how the folks down on the floor uh, put that, that installation together. Uh, I'd like to say that from my standpoint as the program manager from AFRL, the, the, the interface is rather complex. It was the first time we ever put the vehicle together. So there was no, uh, no indication of sloppy workmanship or things like that. But in a demonstrator, you learn things, and as you go back and you start talking to folks, you go, oh, that's what you meant for I didn't understand the nuance of what you were calling out in that drawing and things. And, and basically what happened is, is that that interface was not as strong or as dimensionally uh, uh, tight as we thought. And we actually went back and did some subscale tests to determine what would have happened if we had an interface like that. And sure enough, there was some hot gases and, and things. So what we did is we kind of went through a, a, a complete critical design review of the nozzle interface again, and we came up with several design changes that were uh, uh, geared towards making that interface much more uh, uh, robust. I got to say that we didn't really go away from the design that we had, but we just made it much more, uh, a couple, couple places redundant and a lot more robust.
long answer, but I hope that uh, that answers uh, your question. And are you able to inspect, because one of the issues the first time around was the difficulty of inspecting the, the assembled engine. Have you been able to inspect the assembled engine to see if it's put to, together? Yes, as a matter of fact, to the extent, well, the, well, I would call it the assembled vehicle, because when you clip that engine up in there and that interface, it's not just the engine, but it's that interface and it's the total vehicle. We did actually come up with... Uh, a pretty ingenious way of being able to pressurize that interface uh, so we block off the flow path of the scramjet and block off the back part of the, the nozzle and then we're, we're able to pressurize that area and check it for leaks. Now we, we didn't have any way that we could check it for both pressure and temperature that it would see but at least we it was kind of a workmanship manufacturing uh, type check to make sure that there were no apparent leaks uh, as assembled. So yes, we were able to do that. It, was, it wasn't as easy as it might have sounded, but uh, the Boeing folks in Palmdale did a great job and, and they pulled that together. Right. Yeah, the, the engine, this is Curtis, the engine obviously is inspectable as it, before it even goes into the uh, vehicle. Uh, so. It is the interface seal between the engine and the vehicle uh, nozzle that, that we were talking about, Graham. I'm sure you're aware of that. Uh, w one other thing, Charlie, just to uh, mention to clarify, uh, you had made the, made the comment there while you were talking that not accelerating, I think, uh, I just want to make sure it's clear that we were accelerating through the, through the entire flight, just not as much as anticipated. That, is that accurate? Yeah, I, I, I don't remember myself yeah, I, saying I was just, that, but uh, if, I, if I led that, we were accelerating throughout the flight. Right, I just... Uh, I, but, but we just didn't accelerate to the, to the Mach number that we desired. Right, right. right. I just wanted to make that clear. Okay, okay. thank you. Uh, Mr. Gaffney, you're up. Tim? Are you on the line still, Tim? Okay, we'll skip. Well, Mr. Church? Um, hello. Uh, this is probably an airframe question to some extent, but um, Dr. Stephen Walker, Deputy, Deputy Undersecretary for Science, Technology, and Engineering, mentioned in testimony before the House Armed Services Committee on March 1st that um, after these two additional test flights in 2011 and 12, um, that there was funding in fiscal year 2012 to begin weaponizing the X-51 research vehicle. Um, they mentioned miniaturization of subsystems for uh, payload and uh, a few other things like this. Just wondered if you could give any details on that. Um, I, I'm, not at, I'm not at the liberty to, to comment on what Dr. Walker testified to because I really don't have a comment, you know, I don't have a copy of his testimony. I'd hate to to bring any of that into uh, uh, say anything that might not um, agree with it. I can I can tell you that uh, there are a number of initiatives and plans in the work that none of it is has come out to what I'll call a planned program of record where you could point to and say, okay, that's the that's the project that we're going to take and try and. Uh, weaponize the X-51, but I think what, I, what I'd like to say is that when you told me that about what Dr. Walker had said, I, I think 
we we are going to work on the technologies that are in the X-51 to start transitioning those technologies to a more weapons-friendly design. So while I, again, I don't know what Dr. Walker testified to, I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, in the X-51, because we're a demonstrator, we wanted to use proven technology to the most extent possible to help uh, succeed in the flight. So the our engine controller, that actually is the computer that interfaces with our guidance and control in our, in our airframe uh, computer, is actually the same digital engine controller that the F-22 fighter uses. Uh, it's a, a rather big box. It's probably 20 to 25 pounds. And uh, I believe it has way more computing capability than our engine needs. But it, it did two things. It was flight-worthy hardware that had already been through a very rigorous qualification program. And two, it was a computer that the folks down at, at West Palm Beach in, in Curtis's organization were very familiar with to code and work with uh, and write the software for. So we used that box in the X-51, and we continue to use it, but it's probably a bigger box and a more uh, robust computing capability than we need. So if we could take a, a computer that would be much smaller, takes up less uh, volume, and gets the job done for us, then we might be able to fit more uh, fuel into the vehicle, we might be able to make room for a warhead, those type of things. Uh, so that's, I think, where Dr. Walker was going to. The other thing is, is obviously the X-51 is not a weapon, uh, so we don't have any fusing on it. We don't have any sensors on the vehicle like a electro-optical or microwave or anything like that. And I think that those are the kind of technologies that uh, we would like to start working on and integrating into a, a hypersonic weapon uh, demonstrator down the road. So. I think that's where he was going with there is money put aside to do that. I, I know that for a fact that there's a wedge in, in our technology um, portfolio for that. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, is that to say that you'd be designing a follow-on X-51 type vehicle but not the X-51 itself or is this a sort of foreseen modification of an X-51 platform to do this? That that is what I believe I would say is kind of in the design space. Okay. We have we have a roadmap by which we would be able to kind of work through that process and determine what's the smartest thing to do. But right now, the decision whether we go ahead and we build more X-51s or we modify an X-51 or maybe come up and use the technologies that we developed in the X-51 and come up with a new vehicle, that's still to be decided. Right. And, and one thing that one thing that I might add, this is Curtis. Uh, any of the any of the uh, questions that you might have concerning uh, Dr. Walker's testimony, we I believe we could get the public affairs person uh, from Steve Walker's organization to help answer any questions you might have. Right. And that's right. probably a better way to, to handle some of that. Everything Charlie said. As far as the way I understand it, is very accurate. The X-51 was the it was and is the scramjet engine demonstrator, and spinoffs from this technology and what we've demonstrated could include missiles and access to space and 
potential spin-offs from this. It's just been, and as it's been said many times in the uh, in the press, this is a this was a demonstrator program, and there are very good applications that could follow on and be spin-offs from this from this technology. But any of the comments from Dr. Walker's testimony, which I have read, by the way, you probably want to go to the, the public relations department. Thank you so much. Very well said, Curtis. Thanks. Okay, thank you, Mr. Church. Uh, Mr. Nolan, you're up. Uh, what is the date of the upcoming flight, and uh, how exactly did the Air Force terminate last year's test flight? Did you blow up the vehicle, or? Uh, the Air Force didn't uh, blow up the vehicle, but Point Magoo did. And uh, I'll, I'll answer the, the last question first and get back to when our next flight is scheduled. What what happened was we have uh, we fly that uh, vehicle out over the Point Magoo sea ranges, and, and while we have a pretty wide swath of area that would be cleared by the Point McGill and the Navy uh, test range folks, uh, there's some pretty strict guidelines by which we fly the X-51. And one of the things is you got to remember, if something's going Mach 5 and it's going in a certain direction and then you lose contact with it, within five seconds it could go pretty far distance offline and, and maybe create some problems. So the rules of engagement were that if if Point Magoo in the Edwards control room lost contact with the vehicle, we had a separate redundant flight termination system uh, on the vehicle that if we lost contact for it in five seconds and did not get contact back from it, that the Point Magoo uh, range controller would hit the big red button and he would terminate the flight. And because of that hot gas getting into the vehicle and building up over time, that's precisely what happened. So the vehicle was flying along, but because of those hot gases, we were starting to have telemetry problems uh, getting the data back. And at that 143-second point, we lost it, so they kind of did the count. We didn't hear back from it, so the point of view folks hit the button, and that's why we terminated. And that uh, uh, blew the thing up, obviously. Yeah, well, it, it actually doesn't. It, it has a, uh, in the vehicle, we actually have a little uh, charge that initiates a, uh, a cutter that cuts all lines to the flight controls uh, from the computer. So the fins go hard over, and it, it will always tumble. So that's, that's the, the method by which uh, we terminate the flight. So we really don't have a charge in there that explodes the vehicle. It's something that just cuts the lines to the from the computer to the to the to the fins in the back, and the fins just go hard over, and then it tumbles. Okay. I can't fly that way. So uh, our next flight is scheduled for March 22nd of this month. Uh, however, there's a lot of things that have to come together with both the uh, flight test carrier aircraft, the B-52 and the Point Magoo ranges. So I would say right now that that's the date we're shooting towards, but I would not be surprised if we'd have to push that back for any number of, of issues that might pop up. And I, I really wouldn't want to go into all of the all of the things that are going on with both the aircraft and the range and scheduling and things like that. But safe to say that we're, we're planning to fly fairly soon. Uh, the vehicle is, is at... Uh, a hangar at Edwards Air Force Base, and it's pretty much ready to go. Uh, 
uh, and uh, we'll fly whenever we're able to get up on the B-52 and get out over the range. Has the Air Force considered any uh, options to reuse the vehicles rather than drop them into the Pacific Ocean? Well, of the of the existing X-51s, there is no uh, plan to modify them to uh, be recoverable. When we set the program up, we, we did a fairly extensive uh, trade study on what the costs would be to try and recover one of these things. And the, the real issue is, is that, you know, as that thing's going along flying at Mach 5 and Mach 6, it goes about 400 to 450 nautical miles downrange from where you launch it. And you'd have to set up a, a, a several uh, Navy vessels or things out there on the range and you have to keep them for safety reasons kind of a standoff distance from the box where you're flying along. And as this thing comes down, it's 14 feet long, and you have a parachute that pops out that there's not a lot of volume in the vehicle. So even if a parachute came out and it floated down and hit the water, by the time you had a boat that would or a ship that would steam over at 20 knots that was 200 nautical miles away, you know, we looked at it and said, you know, the thing wouldn't be floating there anymore. It would be sinking. So uh, there are options down the road for the next demonstrator and things like that to maybe incorporate a, a parachute. But for this vehicle, we uh, we don't plan to recover it. Okay. Thanks. All right. Thank you, Mr. Nolan. Uh, Vicki, you're up. Vicki, are you on the line anymore? Hi, this is, I'm uh, with Boeing Communications, so I'm oh, sitting okay. in to listen. Thank yeah. you. Okay. Uh, Sharon? Hey, this is Derek, and uh, I'm just listening in as well. Uh, i just uh, just curious if uh, Charlie had anything uh, that you wanted to add. About? Uh, about X-51. Uh, I understand that, uh, amongst other things, we're, uh, uh, you got to be pretty proud or excited about uh, uh Having uh, taken home at least one award and uh, and being a nominee for uh, some well, others. Yeah, I, I I'd like to publicly thank Graham Warwick, who's on the line. He was our presenter uh, at the Abwick Laureates dinner last week in D.C., and we won the uh, Aeronautics and Propulsion Laureate, and that was definitely the highlight of my career so far. And Graham was very gracious, so thank you, Graham. That was <laughs> a fun, very fun evening. Uh, it was, uh, everybody should be able to experience one or two of those evenings in their career. So uh, it was very, very nice events. And then uh, I'm actually calling from the Crystal Gateway here in D.C. And uh, myself and Dr. Dick Hallion, who used, uh, was the Air Force chief historian through a good portion of the late 90s and early uh, 2000s, we presented to the Collier Committee yesterday. And uh, there's seven other, well, there's six others, or seven total. Uh, finalist, and we find out at a luncheon in about a couple hours uh, who won the Collier. So uh, it's been a great honor to, to be both at the Abweek Laureates and then to present to the Collier Committee uh, yesterday. So it's, it's been a fun couple couple of weeks that we've had. So okay, uh, John Reed, you're up next. Good, thank you. Uh, okay, and uh, the writer from Defense Daily, uh, Marina? Hi. Uh, yeah, hi, I'm here. 
Um, first, I just have a clarification on the uh, nozzle interface tweaks that you're making this time around. I wonder, who is the contractor responsible for that? Is that Boeing that's doing that work? Uh, well, it's it's Boeing and Brett Whitney Rocketon. It's it's an interface issue, so uh, they've uh, uh, they've come together and, and worked as a team to do that. So, and to be honest, with all of the different things that we've done on the vehicle, each of the companies had a responsibility to look at their side of the interface and make some changes to ensure that that interface is correct. So it'd be proper to say that it was both Boeing and Pratt and Whitney Rocketon. Okay. Um, can you also tell me, just uh, try to delineate a little bit, you know, what is Pratt responsible for? Kind of where, did, where does the line end there in terms of who's doing it? I know Pratt's doing the engine, but, you know, what else can you tell me about, you know, who's responsible for which end? Well, how so? On the program or are we still talking about the interface? Um, well, specifically the interface, but also the program as a whole, just to make sure that I know who's doing what. Okay, well, um, we formed, uh, well, actually, Boeing and Pratt and Whitney Rocketdyne back in 2003, late 2003, formed a consortium called the SED, a Scramjet Engine Demonstrator Wave Rider Consortium. So they've, they uh, developed that business relationship uh, to work on this program and develop uh, then uh, a little later on, we got the designation as the X-51. So in that consortium, uh, Pratt & Whitney Rocketdyne is, is the administrative lead. So they are kind of the face to the government, and they have a program office where uh, we work all the contractual uh, and day-to-day business type things. But from a Boeing and Pratt relationship, they, they work as equal partners in developing the vehicle. Pratt & Whitney Rocketdyne is in charge of building and testing the scramjet engine that is the uh, the, uh, the engine that flies the X-51 is actually the focus of the demonstration. And they do also uh, provide all of the engine control uh, hardware, the fuel pump for the vehicle, uh, the hot gas valves that inject the fuel into the engine, and all the associated equipment that goes along with the engine, uh, the data acquisition unit and things like that. Yeah. Boeing is in charge of developing the cruiser airframe uh, and all of the associated avionics and hardware that goes along with that cruiser to include uh, a, a guidance and control unit, an inertial measurement unit, uh, a controller, an integrated controller uh, bus with 1553 and 1760 mill standard kind of hardware. Uh, they uh, have subcontractors that make the actuators for the fins. Uh, they put all of the thermal protection uh, 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 what's the term I'm looking for? We have various types of thermal protection systems, either Boeing light, lightweight ablator or uh, pretty much shuttle tiles that they have on the vehicle. And then they're also in charge of integrating Lockheed Martin's ATACM's booster onto the back of the vehicle, which boosts us up to uh, $2 start envelope for the engine. So they're in charge of interfacing the ATACMs and, and all that. And then, then they also work all of the associated software that we have to use to integrate with the B-52 aircraft. So that's pretty much the, the layout of the program. And then from the interface, it's it's pretty classic. You have a cooled hardware engine, that, and when I say cooled hardware, that the engine 
runs off a JP7 fuel, hydrocarbon fuel, the same uh, fuel that was in the SR71 Blackbird. And that engine hardware all the way up to that interface is fuel cooled while the combustion process is occurring. And then from that interface to the back of the vehicle is a vehicle-mounted uh, titanium nozzle that has high-density bone uh, ablator on it. And that's the interface that both of them work on. So the engine uh, actually grows about three-quarters of an inch uh, by the time that we're into the flight for about 30 seconds. It gets so hot that it thermally, the, the material grows. And it grows back up into that, that airframe-mounted nozzle. And it's a very challenging interface uh, uh, because the dimensions have to be just right. And then we also have to account for that engine growth to make sure that it's a uh, Elite tight and, and robust uh, seal, so it's by no means easy, and, and we actually learned some stuff on the first flight. So uh, I hope that answers your question. It does. Thank you very much. Um, if I could just ask one more quick one, if you could give us kind of the funding profile to date, you know, how much has been spent and what sure. you plan to spend sure. on all four flights. Sure. Uh, to date, roughly, the Air Force is uh, the Air Force. Uh, I need to tell you that the Air Force and DARPA are partners on the program. Uh, up up until this year, roughly, the number is that uh, total funding for the program is $250 million. That was spread across uh, FY, pretty much FY04 through FY11 this year. So, you know, uh, it's probably 30 to 40 million averaging something like uh, 30 million a year. Uh, the DARPA, out of that 250 million, DARPA provided 53 million, so they've given about 20% of the funding. And then, uh, that 250 million out of that, I'd say that Boeing, uh, the consortium that I described earlier, Boeing and Pratt Whitney Rocketdyne, uh, have about a uh, top line on the contract right now is about 220 million dollars of that 250. The associated 30 million that's remaining paid for such things as the flight test operations out at Edwards, wind tunnel testing at Arnold Engineering Development Center, some of the cost of the uh, engine tests at Langley, uh, and then some uh, higher headquarters withholds are taken out of that to pay for uh, some overheads at the lab and things like that. So overall, it's a $250 million project, and Pratt and & Whitney and uh, Boeing share a $220 million top line on the contract. Great, thank you so much. Hey, hey Charlie, it's Curtis. Do, do you want to mention uh, NASA at all? Well, uh, yeah, I, you know that's an interesting point. Thanks, Curtis. You know, uh, NASA NASA has been a huge contributor on the program, but in a non-monetary way, and in a way, it is a monetary way. But um, they have been great partners, and in two areas, they've really helped us. One, um, they provide us pretty much um, uh, rent-free use of their eight-foot tunnel where we conducted both uh, two separate uh, engine test entries for probably about four to six months at a time. Uh, and that enabled them to keep their workforce. Uh, they are very much involved in hypersonics, and they wanted to keep their workforce uh, up to date on hypersonics. And, and in, in return for that, the program actually paid for a facility nozzle that they needed to test our engine at. So we provided, had built 
uh, a Mach 5 nozzle for the Langley facility, and they, they gave us rent-free uh, use. The other thing that was huge was they allowed us about six months uh, free usage of their Columbia supercomputer out at the Ames, uh, NASA Ames, out on the West Coast. And we used that time on the computer to do an awful lot of com computational fluid dynamics to kind of develop the baseline of our aerodynamics on the vehicle. And, and what was really neat about that is, is in flight, we got the data from the first flight and the comparison of the computational fluid dynamics drag and aerodynamic forces on the vehicle uh, uh, were, it was remarkable the uh, fidelity at which the uh, CFD work and the in-flight data correlated. And we were well within about 2% uh, within agreement, which was it was really phenomenal. So in those two areas, NASA really provided us a, a non-monetary benefit that really helped the program. So we don't want to forget about NASA's contributions. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, is there anyone that didn't get to ask a question? Or did anyone join late? Any other bloggers on the line? Okay, well, gentlemen, I will... Uh, uh, leave this up to you. We can go through everyone once more, or uh, I know you guys have to get out for an 11 o'clock meeting. If you're ready to uh, do your closing statements, or if you have time for one more round of questions, I'll leave that to you. Uh, I I prefer if it's I I don't have my watch in front of me. Let me see here. It's uh, about 10:40. Oh, yeah, so we've got we've got plenty. I I would rather uh, just if anybody has any further questions, I've pretty much said everything I need to say. Curse, do you have any closing thoughts? No. I don't, Charlie. I think I think you covered everything pretty thoroughly. Okay, so okay. I, I'd be willing to take a couple more questions if anybody had them. Okay, we'll start at the top again. Uh, Graham. Uh, no, I'm okay at the moment. I think. Yeah. Okay, Tim. Oh, sorry. One question: Are you going to do a dress rehearsal like you did the first one? Will you go up for a captive flight before you do the, or will it just fly the one? Will you fly the B-52 well, the one? Well, uh, no, we are going to do a dress rehearsal. Uh, the the flight test center. As a matter of fact, that's scheduled for this Wednesday, and that's one of the things that we need to get out of the way. Now, from our standpoint on the X-51, we're comfortable enough about the carriage characteristics. We, we understand how it interfaces with the MAL-12 rack. We're not worried about any kind of vibrations or things since we've flown a number of times. So they're going to fly a dress rehearsal, but it will not carry the X-51. What they're going to do is they're going to go out over the sea range and they're going to have the, the, the Dryden F-18s uh, join up and they're going to do the racetrack pattern and make sure they can hit the spot in the sky. We've had a number of aircrew changeouts since last May, so there will be a new new person in the left seat of the uh, B-52. And they plan to fly that mission uh, Wednesday afternoon this week. So that's one of those things that they need to get done before we go off and fly on the 22nd. That's that's one of the issues that I was bringing up, that there's a number of things that need to get done at the flight test center before we fly, but we're getting close. Okay, thanks. Yep. Okay, thanks, Graham. Tim, do you have anything? Mr. Gaffney? No? Okay, Ari Church, do you have any other further questions? No, I'm good to go, thank you. Okay, John Nolan? All right, uh, Mr. Kaufman? I'm uh, good to go. Okay. Uh, Sharon? No. John Reed? Okay, Marina, do you have any further questions? All right, well, thank you all. We've had some great questions. Oh, excuse me, go ahead. 
Nope, we're good. This is Charlie. I said thanks. Okay, thank you all. We've had some great questions and comments today. As we wrap up today's call, I'd like to ask the speakers if they have any final comments. Uh, this is Charlie. Uh, I just want to reiterate, and Curtis did a great job. Uh, for for the, the, the person who asked the question about Dr. Walker's uh, testimony, if, if you could work with, uh, Lieutenant, if you could work with uh, that individual and get the... Uh, get uh, Dr. Walker's comments to them. Uh, uh, yeah, I just want to tell you that I, I can't really comment on what Dr. Walker said, but from a from an overall standpoint, I think my comments pretty much hit the mark. So. Okay, thank you very much. And uh, the blogger that <clears throat> that's interested in the comments from Dr. Walker, if you could please respond to our administrator's email, and uh, we'll get you some point of contact information for that. Uh, thank you to everyone on the line for your participation. Today's program will be available online at the Bloggers Roundtable link on DOD.mil, DODLive.mil, where you'll be able to access the story based on today's call along with source documents such as this audio file. Thank you again to everyone on the line, and this concludes today's event. Feel free to disconnect at this time.